Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to A History of Europe, Gebatos, The Livonian Wars, Part 2 of 4. In the medieval period, Scandinavia was a political backwater. Denmark was the most prosperous and strongest politically of the three crowns, the two others being Sweden and Norway. However, they were all overshadowed in terms of power and influence by a naval merchant alliance known as the Hanseatic League, also known as the Hansa. Growing from a few north German towns in the late 1100s, the Hansa were originally founded by a collection of market towns and merchant guilds to protect their mutual trading interests. They went on to dominate Baltic maritime trade for over three centuries along the coasts of Northern Europe and through their wealth became a major political power. Their network of towns stretched from the west, the east coast of England, across the North Sea and the Baltic as far as Novgorod in the east. The Hanseatic cities had their own legal system and operated their own armies for mutual protection and aid. They had no central authority, but the official capital was in the German city of Lübeck, in northern Germany. Some other important member cities were Bergen in Norway, Visby on the Baltic island of Gotland, the German ports of Hamburg, Bremen and Rostock, Danzig, which is modern-day Gdansk in Poland, Riga, which is today capital of Latvia, and Rival, which is modern-day Tallinn, capital of Estonia. The more economically advanced and populous western settlements within the network produced manufactured goods and in turn were markets for raw materials from the east such as grain, timber, wax and honey and hemp and flax which were drawn from the huge hinterland to the south and east of the Baltic modern day Russia and Poland. From Sweden was traded copper and iron ore, and also herring, while Norwegians provided whale oil and cod. The Hansa also monopolised shipbuilding in the region, and sold ships throughout Europe. When the Dutch started to become competitors of the Hansa in shipbuilding, the Hansa tried to stop the flow of shipbuilding technology from Hanseatic towns to Holland. From the 14th century, the power of the Hansa came under increasing threat. 
King Valdemar IV of Denmark, who reigned from 1340 to 1375, who had the sobriquet of Atadag, or New Dawn, fought to wrest control of the Baltic waters from the League. Valdemar made some significant gains for the Danish crown, but in 1368 suffered a heavy defeat against the forces of the Hansa. In 1370, Valdemar was forced to accept the Peace of Stralsund, under which the Hansa merchants won some tax exemptions, free passage through the Sound, and a 15-year lease of three coastal forts, which gave them full control of important fishing grounds. The League even obtained for a while a formal veto on the choice of King of Denmark. Despite the setback, King Valdemar IV is often regarded as one of the most important of all Danish medieval kings. In his long reign, he gradually reacquired lost territories to his kingdom. His attempt to recreate Denmark as a great power in northern Europe was welcomed by the Danes in the beginning. But Valdemar's heavy-handed approach and his tax demands met with bitter opposition by the great landed families. Nevertheless, he left the Danish crown in a stronger position than on his accession. Another of Valdemar's legacies was his sixth and youngest child, Margaret, who was born in 1353 and would go on to become Queen of the United Denmark, Sweden and Norway. Widely regarded by historians as wise, energetic and capable, Margaret scored her first diplomatic success in 1375 by persuading the Danish council to elect her five-year-old son Olaf to the Danish crown. The price in return was a charter which imposed many limitations by the nobility on the crown. But over time, Margaret earned great authority in the court by her excellent diplomatic skills. Five years later, in 1380, the young King Olaf inherited Norway from his father when he died, whereupon Margaret's second regency marked the beginning of a Dano-Norwegian union, which was to last more than four centuries. In 1387, Olaf died suddenly at the age of just 17, but Margaret reacted promptly to protect her position. Shortly after, she was elected as ruler in both Denmark and Norway, and so earned herself the title of Margaret I of Denmark. Meanwhile, the Kingdom of Sweden was in turmoil. After a civil war, its capital, Stockholm, was taken by Albert, Duke of Mecklenburg although only after agreeing to extensive concessions to the Swedish nobility. Albert was unpopular outside the capital, and in Stockholm too, when in 1389 he attempted to take control of large estates from the Swedish nobility. Facing a loss of landholdings and wealth, the Swedish council turned to Margaret of Denmark to plead for help in getting rid of Albert. Margaret sent troops in February 1389, the Danes defeated and captured Albert. Albert's allies, however, harried the Baltic and continued to hold out in Stockholm, and it was only nine years later when Margaret finally won the Swedish capital. The union of the three kingdoms was given a formal basis by a solemn coronation, which took place in 1397 in the Swedish town of Kalmar, close to the then border of Denmark. In order to try and stabilise the union, Margaret's aim had always been to find a male ruler. She chose her grand-nephew, Eric of Pomerania. The terms of the union were that the three realms should be ever united under one king, 
and that they should have a common defence policy. Each Kenyan would still retain rights of sovereignty over all matters of law and administration. And thus was born the Kalmar Union. Even when Eric came of age, Margaret continued as de facto ruler of the Union. Under her leadership, both Finland and Gotland were recovered, while some southern territories also began to be reintegrated. Margaret also enacted reforms to put the monarchy on a strong economic basis. Crown lands, which had been earlier given away to nobles, was recovered. The tax system was improved and a new coinage was struck. In order to create a common identity and conscious of balancing power between the different regions, intermarriages between the nobility of the three realms was encouraged. At the time of Margaret's sudden death, in October 1412, the Kalmar Union was by far the most powerful force in the Baltic, was also, within Europe, territorially second in size only to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Unfortunately, Margaret's successors lacked her good judgement and diplomatic skills. Her son Eric, who assumed real power after her death in 1412, appointed a number of Danes and Germans to administrative posts in Sweden, and interfered in the affairs of the Church. His aggressive foreign policy demanded higher taxes from Sweden, arousing the peasants' anger. His war with Holstein resulted in a Hanseatic blockade of the Scandinavian states in 1426, cutting off the import of salt and other necessities, and the export of ore from Sweden, and led to a revolt by peasants and miners in 1434. Eric's successors had similar problems, attempting to forge harmony within the Kalmar Union, there was always a section of Swedish nobility unhappy with the Union, who considered the arrangement as a Danish takeover, and they demanded more independence. In the second decade of the 1500s, conflict arose in Sweden between the pro-Union forces, led by the Archbishop of Uppsala, Gustav Troller, and Sten Sturer, who played upon national feelings of the masses to make himself king and captured several fortresses. King Christian II sent the Danish fleet to Sweden twice in order to reimpose his authority, and in the second campaign, Stensture was mortally wounded. On the 4th of November 1520, Christian was in a strong enough position to have himself crowned as King of Sweden. In an apparent gesture of reconciliation, he invited all the great families to a banquet. Having won the initiative, Christian was determined to stamp out any remaining opposition. Three days after his coronation, 82 of his enemies were seized and led away in chains to Stockholm Castle. There they were all tried for heresy, found guilty and executed in Stortorge, a market square which still exists in the city today. It was raining heavily that day and rivers of blood ran down the steep alleys of the old town. Writes Alan Palmer in his book, The Northern Shores, five centuries later, the Stockholm bloodbath of 1520 remains as vivid in Swedish images of the past as does the massacre of St Bartholomew's Day, 1572, for the people of Paris. This event of French history will be covered in a podcast in the near future. Not content with one day's massacre, Christian ordered executions of his enemies as far as Finland, 
and will continue during his return journey across southern Sweden, the total number of estimated victims being 600. However, the bloodbath did not succeed in its aim of stamping out opposition. For the pro-independence movement found a courageous leader in the shape of Gustav Vasa, a young nobleman. At first it looked like a lost cause, but when rumours of a further campaign from Denmark were heard, rebellion broke out among peasants and miners. Next year, Gustav acquired assistance from Lübeck in men, ships and money. Archbishop Trotter, who Christian II had left in charge of Sweden, was driven out of Stockholm, and in June 1523 an assembly of the realm unanimously elected Gustav Vasa as King of Sweden. The 125-year-old union of Kalmar was over. After Sweden broke away, Denmark and Norway were still formally united. The last warning of the Kalmar Union occurred in 1536, when the Danish council declared Norway to be a province instead of a separate kingdom. Norway was able to keep some separate institutions and its legal system, and centuries later would gain its own independence. One legacy of this was the passing of the Norwegian possessions of Iceland and the Faroe Islands to the Danish crown. While Iceland gained independence in the 20th century, the Faroe Islands remain part of the Kingdom of Denmark today. After Gustav Vasa was elected to the throne in 1523, he began to restore the power of the Swedish king and to organise the central administration under his own direct leadership. However, one limitation on his power was dependency on the Hanseatic League. In order to acquire the throne, Gustav had been compelled to make concessions to Lübeck in exchange for both economic and military support. The merchants of Lübeck and the Hanseatic League were thus given privileges that created a monopoly of Swedish foreign trade and even had considerable influence on domestic trade and industry. The concessions also included a large payment and left Sweden heavily in debt to Lübeck. Relations between Copenhagen and Stockholm were surprisingly cordial, as they had common opponents in the Hanseatic League and Christian II, who was deposed as King of Denmark in 1523. When Lübeck attempted to restore Christian II to Denmark, Gustav Vasta gave the young Danish king, Christian III, strong military support. The Hanseatic army was defeated in 1535, and by the terms of a truce, the Swedish debt to Lübeck was wiped out, and the privileges of Lübeck traders were abolished. By this action, Hanseatic hegemony was destroyed, other foreign traders were allowed to enter Sweden, and Swedish traders could now move freely beyond the Baltic. The Hansa were never able to recover. In the east they also suffered a major blow by the capture in 1478 of Novgorod by Ivan III, the Grand Prince of Moscow, who expelled the Hanseatic merchants living there. And in the west, Amsterdam was gaining in importance and acquired a position of leading port for Polish and Baltic grain. The League continued to decline in the next decades, would never again wield significant political power. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. King Gustav I Vasa was a hard-working and skilled administrator who was able to strengthen significantly the position of the Swedish crown. He carried out a local reformation, replacing the prerogatives of local landowners, noblemen and clergy with centrally appointed governors and bishops. His 37-year rule saw a complete break with not only Danish supremacy, but also, like his contemporary Henry VIII of England, the Roman Catholic Church. In 1544, he abolished medieval Sweden's elective monarchy, replaced it with a hereditary monarchy, so establishing the House of Vassa, which would rule Sweden for many years to come. In foreign affairs, Gustav acted cautiously and concentrated on the defence of his realm. He'd built a chain of fortresses, the most striking of which today is Gripsholm, a thick-walled, three-storied hexagon, 50 kilometres to the west of Stockholm. Gustav also sought the establishment in Finland, which was a possession of the Swedish crown, of a new trading post. He chose a site at the innermost point of a bay formed by the mouth of the river Vanta. Later, the new settlement was moved five kilometres near the sea and went to become Helsinki, today's capital of Finland. Denmark remained the dominant regional power, possessing in that time a number of provinces that today in southern Sweden. Thus, Denmark controlled the southern Baltic and every one of its outlets, the Great Little Belt, as well as the Sound. Like in Sweden, Denmark at this time broke with the Church in Rome and adopted Lutheranism. King Christian III, who reigned from 1534 to 1559, established Lutheranism as the state religion within his realms as part of the Protestant Reformation. Under his reign, the Danes continued to eclipse the Hanseatic League as the dominant naval power in the Baltic. This balance of power was accelerated thanks to developments in naval technology, with the construction of ever larger warships designed to carry a larger number of heavy guns. The new warships were unsuitable for use by the Hansa, since they could not afford the vast expense of maintaining dedicated warships on such a scale, while Christian could afford them thanks to his lucrative revenues from the Sound Jews. Denmark's growing naval power and geographical position involved it in the wider world of European politics. The ruling Oldenburg dynasty had family links to the English crown and German principalities. 
To the south, the Danes sought to take any advantage of local vulnerabilities to gain further control of the Elbe. The one major river draining the central European plain, which flows into the North Sea, that's to say west of Jutland. In the north they sought to extend their rights in the North Sea. They declared the right to levy tolls on ships sailing to the north Russian port of Archangel, a claim they could not enforce, and which just ended up alienating the Kingdom of England. Such assertiveness was risky, given Denmark's lack of natural resources to back up such bold claims. It possessed no significant mineral resources and was heavily dependent upon agriculture and fishing, in particular around Iceland and Greenland. Attempts to keep foreign vessels out of these waters led to confrontation with other powers, including the Dutch. Moreover, the elected Danish monarchy had to take account of the views of its council, which represented the interests of the nobility. They were happy to maintain a powerful navy to protect Danish commerce, but resisted any wider military ambitions of the ruling dynasty. The Swedish crown, meanwhile, was comparatively poorer than that of Denmark. Lacking Denmark's access to Germany and Western Europe, Sweden was very much a Baltic power on the edge of Europe. It was sparsely populated, with a total population in 1500 of barely more than 750,000, a substantial majority of whom were peasant farmers. Writes Robert Frost in his book The Northern Wars, 1558-1721, quote, The climate was harsh, and vast areas in the north and in Finland were all but unpopulated. The growing season was short, and the economy was short of specie, with rents and taxes often being paid in kind. With only a narrow and precarious outlet to the North Sea, trade with Europe was difficult, and the fact that most Swedish ports were icebound throughout the winter made naval operations impossible for much of the year. End quote. Sweden's main advantage economically was its natural and mineral resources, particularly timber, iron and copper. In fact, she enjoyed a virtual monopoly of European copper production. As for form of government, Gustav Vasa established a council composed of the four estates of nobles, clergy, burghers and free peasants, and so the powerful aristocratic families were not as dominant as in Denmark. A rival to both Sweden and Denmark was the Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania. Since the personal union of 1386, Poland-Lithuania had emerged as a powerful state with far more resources than its Scandinavian neighbours. In 1500, its territories covered over a million square kilometres, stretching from the Baltic in the north almost to the Black Sea in the south, incorporating Belarus and much of modern-day Ukraine. Thanks to being relatively unaffected by the plague, and thanks to its exporting of grain and raw materials, their economy thrived, and the population rose steeply. Its largest settlement was Danzig, on the Baltic coast, and other important cities were Krakow, Lvov, Poznan, Elbing, Thorn, Warsaw and Vilnius. This period is sometimes known as Poland's Golden Age, according to Norman Davis in his book God's Playground, A History of Poland. While in many other arts, Poland was on the periphery of Europe, she was rich in the fields of science, literature and learning. Printing flourished from an early date, the first work produced in 1473. 
Noblemen who could afford to would send their sons abroad to Germany and Italy to study the latest ideas. One of those who studied abroad was Nicholas Copernicus, the 1473 to 1543, who formulated a model of the universe that placed the sun rather than the earth at the centre of the universe. The publication of Copernicus's model in his book on the revolutions of the celestial spheres just before his death was a major event in the history of science, making a significant contribution to the scientific revolution. My name is Carl Rylett, and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. As ever, it's great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page, or the blog www.historyeurope.net, or Twitter at historyeurope.kb, or you can write directly to me, Carl at historyeurope.net. If you're able to give some financial assistance to the podcast, then it'd be great if you could go onto Patreon and help out there. It will help to fund the research for the podcast. A way you can help for free is by giving a review to the podcast on iTunes. Thank you to the 200 people in the States alone who have given the podcast a rating. And to the many people who have also given a written review. I really do appreciate it. I hope you can join me next week when I will be talking about Ivan the Terrible and his invasion of Livonia. Until then, have a good week and goodbye.